A different future starts with you. That's why GoDaddy does more than help you find a name. You can create, sell, and get found online so any small business can make a change. We need a new generation of thinking. Your way of thinking. Start different at GoDaddy.com. If you've recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today. This is an ode to Napa cabbage. Of all the cabbages on all the cabbage farms, only you have the crisp crunch worthy of our Bibigo Korean dumplings. No other cabbage would do, because no other cabbage tastes like you. We love you, Napa cabbage. Just don't tell Green Onion. Napa cabbage, one of many obsessively crafted ingredients in every hearty, flavorful Korean dumpling from Bibigo. Go handcrafted. Go Bibigo. Authentic Korean dumplings now in the freezer aisle. This is Podco Media Networks. Hey, everybody. Elle Wolf here, host of the Further Podcast. Super excited to have Julie Zato on the show today. In part one of this discussion, we're going to talk to Julie about her work as a fractional CMO and an executive coach for marketing leaders. Uh, Julie is currently the CMO in residence at Demand Spring, and we go way back. So this is a really, really fun, kind of deeply psychological discussion, and I hope you enjoy it. So Julie and I worked together. What do we think it was? So we just said your son was in your belly when we were together. He's now almost 18, at least almost 18 years ago. Yes. And back in those days, I was very, very early in my marketing career working for the Yankee Group, which is a services organization and a research organization. And Julie was running events, which is crazy to think about. So we'll start where we always start and talk a little bit about where you are today and how you got to from running events at the Yankee Group to being the CMO in residence at DemandSpring. Well, thank you for having me, Elle. And you just put a whole different data dump of memories back in my head about those days of you know my first experience. It wasn't my first experience sort of leading a group, but it was absolutely my first experience leading a group and trying to, you know, advance my career while going through what it was like to be pregnant. And, you know, that's a whole other podcast conversation about, you know, oh God, the kind of stories we could tell about the ways in which we bluffed how complicated that actually was and did our best to pull it off. And I'm still bluffing, still yeah, doing it. Every day. Yeah, still bluffing, you know, but the pregnancy bluff is its own special version <laughs> of clear moments for women I know that have had the blessings of both experiences. So, but yeah, for me, I... Think like many an English major with a journalism minor came out of college with that sense of, oh God, I have absolutely no idea what I'm going to do. I know what I don't like to do, but I don't know what I do like to do. I was very fortunate after college to win a graduate fellowship to go pursue a degree abroad. So I then got a master's degree in international relations and launched myself back into the New York City market after I completed that degree, right in the throes of an economic recession and a terrible job market. And if I'm going to be honest, I was desperately trying to break into broadcast journalism because I thought it was a perfect fusing of my interest in international relations and the world that I had just learned about through my degree, as well as my experiences with English and journalism as an undergraduate. And this after- is like we're talking like mid nineties right now. Yeah. Yeah. Early mid nineties. And before anyone was using the word podcast. Right. So I was indeed looking for jobs in the New York Times on the weekend and circling them and then taking the bus into the Port Authority and going on interviews. And I did eventually actually get a break from one of the three major TV networks to be what they called a desk assistant. And this was the crowning moment of my 
early career opportunity exploration. And then they walked me into the newsroom and they showed me the way it looked. And they said, here's the thing. You went to a great college, but it's not an Ivy League college. Everybody else out there went to an Ivy League college, but we're going to give you this job offer, Julie. Oh, and by the way, the news is on a 24-hour cycle. So obviously this is an eight-hour day. It can be any eight hours in a 24-hour news day that we decide we need you. But we don't actually have the budget for this position full-time right now. So this position will be half-time. So it's four hours a day, four hours a day, every day, in any given 24-hour window in which we might need you. And the full-time pay for this job is $16,000, and we will pay you half that, which is eight. And you'll have benefits, but that left me, the person who had felt as if she had channeled her whole ambition into an opportunity like this one, trying to crunch the numbers on how in the world I was going to commute into the Port Authority of New York City in the middle of the night to work a four-hour shift, making $8,000 a year working in New York City. And I had to take a big step back and admit that I didn't want it that badly (laughs) because it made absolutely no sense to me. So I did an instant redirect, went and met with a couple other headhunters. And about two weeks later, found myself with the job offer to be the assistant to the president of an advertising agency in New York City. And that indirectly was how I ended up with my start in marketing. (laughs) Wow. That's incredible. It's funny, you know, I actually started out in the journalism program at Northeastern and then pivoted to English and philosophy. Very, very useful. And I hadn't even gotten to the point where I was like actually like considering like what it would be to be a journalist, but I got enough of a taste in the journalism program and I was terrified. I'm like, how do people do this? Like this seems like, I mean, a ton of work and volatility and uncertainty and all those for very little money. (laughs) And I was like, I think I should figure out something else to do. And I often credit, because, you know, I graduated in 2000. And so, I mean, I was graduating into a a pretty tough economy and, you know, I was working in startups when actually it's how we ended up working together was I had a a startup that essentially closed down. I still credit the Northeastern Co-op program for the fact that I have a job at all because, you know, I studied English and philosophy. My mother was like, what are you going to do with your life? I was like, so unbelievably impractical you know how to read books and write papers. And, you know, luckily going through the co-op program, you're forced to work six months out of the year. And I landed at a dot-com and learned some practical skills. And here we are. Here we are. Two of the smartest women I have ever worked with in marketing, you being one of them, came out of that Northeastern program. I will also tell you that a number of years ago, I was asked to sit on a panel at Northeastern of marketing professionals to talk about the field. And they had brought in a huge audience of students who are part of that co-op program. Of all the different panels I've sat on in my career, those were some of the most impressive questions I've ever seen an audience ask. And it was the audience of the Northeastern co-op program students. Yeah, I mean, it's really interesting to me. This is like such a side tangent, but <laughs> we ask these kids. Now, I remember, you know, going to college and my parents were very working class people. They didn't have business jobs. My father worked for the phone company. And so like I hadn't been exposed to a lot. I knew that I loved to read and I love literature, but I had no idea what I wanted to do. And it's so like, you know, unless you're one of those kids who grows up being like, I'm going to be a this or a that, 
really hard to get to school and start to form an opinion about that. And the best thing about that program for me was exposing, and you said this, exposing me to things I didn't want to do and being like, oh, I'm, I'm not that person and giving me a perspective on things that I hadn't even considered. Like I didn't even know they, these jobs existed. So I thank God for that because I don't know what I would be doing right now. Amen. I hear you. <laughs> so you're at DemandSpring. And full disclosure, I sit on the board of advisors at DemandSpring, which you recommended me in for, which I really have enjoyed doing and being part of those conversations. Can you talk a little bit about what DemandSpring does and what your role entails as the CMO in residence? I believe that's like a relatively new kind of position there. Yeah. So the way that worked for me was after having spent many years in marketing leadership at different companies in the greater Boston area and some remote roles as well, After a number of years of that, I had actually gone out on my own, but as part of that role had met up with DemandSpring and I actually ended up on their board of advisors, which was a wonderful experience for me. And after having been out on my own, I actually started a small consultancy, which I called Pinch Hit CMO. And I was sort of doing fractional marketing leadership for a number of years, but then started partnering with DemandSpring for some of their enterprise clients and fusing some of what I was doing with some of what they were doing. And there was such an incredible natural fit that as DemandSpring kept growing and my opportunity to work with them kept commensurately growing, Mark Eamon, the founder of DemandSpring, approached me and said, you know, I think there might be an opportunity to almost meld what you're doing with Pinch Hit CMO, but into what we're doing with DemandSpring. And the reason why I was so excited about that, and I've been on board there less than a year now, but it feels longer because I have really partnered with them for much more time than that is that DemandSpring's expertise is in finding the synergies between strategy, technology implementation and best practices, content marketing, and fusing it all together, you know, from that perspective of an integrated sort of revenue marketing consultancy. But the piece that I was delivering for them as a partner really had much more to do with the talent side of the equation, the talent optimization side of the equation, the marketing leadership side of the equation. And it's the piece of the broader marketing universe that has always been my passion point since I have found my footing in marketing leadership. And it's what I naturally return to when I'm trying to diagnose where organizations you know, might have a gap. It's been a real natural fit for me to sort of fit my area of passion and expertise into the broader demand spring, you know, quote, revenue marketing system. It's the talent piece. Yeah, I love to hear you say that because it's 100% true. I mean, I can say, to me, it's just so short-sighted if that's not the thing you look at first. I mean, the people, it's all people-powered. And, you know, depending on what you're trying to get done and what you need to accomplish, like, it really all comes down to talent. And I think, honestly, at this point in my career, it's the thing that I'm probably best at. But the thing I love most is, like, figuring out how do you build and staff a great team? How do you inspire great work in people? How do you fit people together in a way that's meaningful and that makes sense? So... I love to hear that. I want to talk a little bit about fractional CMO work because I find this interesting. So, you know, I was out of work for a little bit and I actually took on some kind of fractional CMO work. And it was really interesting. I mean, you know, different companies approach this in different ways. I was working with some startups that you know, weren't maybe ready to staff a full marketing team, but definitely needed help. Man, it's hard. It's hard to sort of swoop into somebody's business, get to know just enough about it, be both a strategic, thoughtful kind of leader, but also be incredibly tactical at the same time. So I'd love to hear you talk a little bit about where fractional CMO makes sense or why and how that experience is different 
than like being on staff full time. Just I'd love, love some perspective on that. Yeah. So I had been the head of marketing CMO for a few different companies and was at a point in my life where recalibrating my universe became important to me. And I couldn't figure out actually how to do that, continuing to be a full-time CMO for a software company. Because if I'm being honest, from my perspective and from my experience and from the people I know, and even from within my network, I'm not going to completely generalize, but nine times out of 10, if you are deciding to accept the opportunity to be the CMO of a large, vibrant, complicated company, you are deciding to make that thing come first in your life. If you are looking at that CEO and telling them you will do what you have been hired to do. So in so doing, by definition, I believe so strongly that our life is the hours we spend and the things we choose to prioritize with our hours. And I was at a point in my life where I was no longer willing to prioritize in that fashion. And Mm -hmm. You kind of have to call yourself out on it. Whatever that expression is, you know, you can have it all, but you can't have it all at once. You know, so true. So in that regard, I said, you know, I know what I like to do. I know what I'm good at. I know that I can be a powerful partner to a CEO who's trying to figure out how to calibrate what version of marketing spend and marketing leadership is going to get him or her over the line to where they need to be. But I'm not willing to tell them in this phase of my life that they come first. So in that regard the idea of becoming a consultant became better. And then I tried to think about, you know, by the way, I love that expression about startups. And I can't remember exactly who coined it, but it's the idea that startups fail not because of starvation, but because of indigestion. Meaning they try to be all things to all people. They try to do too much at once. And as a result, they don't have the courage to focus. And as a result, they can't figure out who their perfect ideal customer profile is and specifically what they could deliver of value quickly enough. So I tried to take those lessons to heart, some of the lessons that I had been working on inside organizations that I'd been in and apply it to myself and this idea of my own marketing consultancy. And that's where I hatched the idea of what I called pinch hit CMO. Obviously, the vision of the pinch hitter in baseball comes to mind, which is pretty funny because I never even played softball, but the image worked for me. You're from Boston. So, you know, exactly. You know, I'm a Red Sox fan. And so therefore, I felt like I could at least go so far as to build a baseball analogy into my company name. And as a result of that, my tagline became really easy for me too. So it was sort of pinch hit CMO for when marketing leaders leave. It was very straightforward. Exactly what it meant. And I found that my work ended up falling into two categories. And one of them you just mentioned, it was either A, the category of a large organization where the CMO has churned and read the Spencer Stewart data to show that the CMO role churns more quickly than any other role in the C-suite, only to find out that, you know, if you're building a business model, if you're betting against the odds, so to speak, you know, it's it's right there. You know that that role is going to churn. But it was an opportunity to figure out how to help companies diagnose why it churned and what kind of new CMO they would need to ensure better stability in the role moving forward. The other alternative was the fast-growing startup that was ready for marketing leadership, but not ready to pull the trigger and make the commitment to a full-time CMO. And therefore, often also really didn't know what kind of CMO to prioritize for amongst the candidates in the marketplace. So those kind of became my two pivots as a fractional CMO, was helping large organizations kind of bridge the time between the parting CMO and the new one, and then helping smaller organizations actually diagnose what kind of CMO they really needed and why. And then oftentimes 
getting into the executive search side of it and helping them find that person too. COVID-19 patients need your help. If you fully recovered from COVID-19 or unknowingly been exposed to it, you may have the antibodies that could help COVID-19 patients recover. Donate blood and receive testing for COVID-19 antibodies. Visit Vitalant.org today to schedule an appointment to donate blood. That's V-I-T-A-L-A-N-T dot Help save lives and schedule your appointment at Vitalant.org. You could help save lives. I actually want to address something you just said because it kind of gives me a thought. You hear this, and I've heard it for as long as I've been in marketing about the tenure of CMOs and how the turnover is really high and most CMOs only last, I can't remember what it was, something like three years or whatever. And it always kind of feels like an indictment. Mm on the part of the marketer, like, oh, CMOs can't last in this cutthroat. And I, I, that's how I've always taken it is basically like CMOs are flighty and therefore, but like nine times out of 10, I think that th- there's often fit issues, wrong leader for a type of company, whatever. But I also think like, man, it's a hard gig. I've been blessed to work for some great you know, CEOs, but I think it can be really, really tough career, especially in this day and age where there is so much pressure and accountability and measurement and all of those things. What's your perspective on this? I think it's the toughest job in the C-suite. I really do. And I think that's because if you think about how different marketing is today, even than five years ago, let alone 10 years ago, I would argue there's probably almost no other role in the C-suite that has been reinvented at the rate and pace of change that the CMO role has been reinvented at. And the issue is that We also are dealing with the confluence of this explosion of new technology and tools that theoretically could make us into superheroes. And that has created this incredible dissonance between what is possible in the world of perfect data, perfect process, and perfect execution, and what actually happens when real humans come together and try to rumble with all three of those things. So to me, the biggest challenge that CMOs have nowadays is that we haven't learned to do what the architect who's going to redesign your luxury kitchen learned to do a long time ago. Because that architect is going to walk into your kitchen, hear your vision for the way you want that to look, and look at you at the end and say, okay, you can have it good, fast, or cheap. Pick right. <laughs> And then that's the way it works. And yeah. to some degree, that's what we as CMOs are missing the moment to challenge our CEOs on too often, which is that chance to say, listen, you know, as you're looking at your business strategy and your growth mindset and your, you know, fiscal year objectives and your plans, I can help you get there. And I can help you get there fast. I can help you get there well. And I can help you get there in a cost-effective way. But I can't give you all three things at once. No, it's fair. Let's get into it and let's prioritize that. And then I'll build you my 90-day plan. And then I'll show you what I'm going to do. And then I'm going to tell you how much it's going to cost. And then I'm going to tell you how fast it'll happen. That's the missing dialogue. And I believe that is the root of the challenge with setting proper expectations with C-suite as a CMO today and why the role turns as often as it does. Amen to all of that. I, I totally agree. I think also like on the surface of it, everybody's got an opinion and a perspective about marketing. And there's the very visible stuff that goes on that everyone's why like I hate to tackle like a website redesign project because everyone's an expert on a corporate website. But there's so much that happens in marketing that is sort of like beneath the surface of the water that people don't appreciate or have an appetite for because it's like the detail work and the ops stuff and all of that. And I think like 
while other members of the C-suite think they know a lot about marketing, they know about the 20% that's super visible. And there's this whole world of stuff that you're dealing with every single day that people don't necessarily get. And you're totally right. Like I do think marketing is that place where it is so easy to fall victim from a lack of focus because you try to do it all. And my one trait that everyone is very aware of is that I'm incredibly direct. So I've never had a problem pushing back and saying like, that's totally unrealistic and here's how we need to do it. But when I think about it, when I think about you and I work together, I was in a marketing role almost 20 years ago. That job doesn't look remotely similar to not just the job I have today, but the job that marketers do. It's like not even the same. That's how much it's changed in 20 years, right? You know, and that brings up another point that I think we have to call out is that, you know, on some level, the speed with which marketing leadership has changed just in the past half decade, there's nothing you can compare it to from the past. But as a result, marketing leaders have to be honest with themselves about what they know how to do versus what they know how to lead. And those are two very different things. And I do see a number of examples of CMOs who I believe are still trying to bluff the fact that they can do everything. And by definition of the point in their careers when they got to a certain level of seniority and the timing in which all of this new marketing technology and measurement capability came in, by definition, they could not possibly have been the person doing it. They had to become the person leading it. And understanding the nuances of difference there and how you represent yourself and what your authentic leadership persona looks like as a result of that, I think that's still a challenge for a lot of CMOs. What an astute observation. That is such a great perspective. And I think you're spot on. It's so funny. I mean, I guess in a way I was very lucky because when I was coming up in marketing, it was sort of the marketing technology and what would come to be known as demand generation were having this sort of zeitgeist moment where it was like, oh, marketers can actually do all these things they can never do before. And they need to be more like a technologist and they can operate somewhat autonomously. And, you know, I was super lucky. It was just time and place and circumstance. And I ended up at Eloqua. And so I was blessed in that I actually did get to build it and touch it and manage it and have a front row seat. And that has kind of turned me into my personal brand as like a revenue marketer, a performance marketer, somebody who has actually done the work. But when you're two steps away from it, and all you've ever done is lead the people doing the work, it's really hard to understand the nuances and like what it takes. It's so funny as a result, like I have a tremendous amount of empathy for like marketing ops people because I know what that job looks like and I know that they are the unsung heroes and I know how hard it can be. It's also funny in that when I was at Path Factory, it was my first time leading all of marketing. I had been a demand gen marketer. I had led demand gen teams. That's what I was good at. I know digital marketing. I know demand gen. And suddenly I have to run marketing for a whole company. And Luckily, you know, the reason I was hired to do that was because the demand gen marketing ops infrastructure piece of it was the most important thing when I joined. And so that was first and foremost. But over the four years that I was there, I rebranded that company. Like I had to tread into waters that I was very uncertain and unfamiliar with. And I think like the key there is just humility. You have to be honest about what you know and what you don't know and what you're good at. And you have to be great at leaning at, on people who are better at those things than you. But it's easy to yeah. you know, build yourself in a way that's maybe a little less authentic because I would never now claim like, I'm a great brand marketer. Like I know 
plenty about that stuff, but I'm not a great brand marketer. Like that would not be the thing I try to to advertise about myself. So that's an interesting point. I mean, I do a lot of work with CMO clients of DemandSpring around sort of skills gap assessment for their marketing organizations. And one of the areas that I like to sort of get to is let's start with an honest skills gap assessment of yourself. It's a scarier conversation for a lot of CMOs, but opening it up creates a level of transparency that enables the dialogue to be much more authentic when they're trying to have it with their direct reports and then trying to get their direct reports to have it with the people that report to them. A long time ago, I had heard a talk by Ben Zander, the musical director of the Boston Philharmonic, and he was talking about parallels between his world and the business world. And I had this sort of come to Jesus epiphany moment. And I said, you know, for better or for worse, that's me. Or what I'm saying is that's what I believe from my vantage point is the best kind of marketing leader I can be. And and the analogy is, okay, so my first analogy of this podcast apparently had to be that of interior designer for your kitchen. I'm going to see how many analogies I can load into this recording. The second one is going to be that of a conductor. But my thinking is, if you're the conductor of an orchestra, you don't get that job because you have told the board of directors of the Boston Philharmonic that you promise you can play the tuba, the flute, the drums, and the entire string section better than anybody else. Like, that's not what you're promising. By the way, if once those people are hired and they're sitting in your orchestra pit, you're trying to lead them by showing off the fact that you're better than every single one of them of their individual jobs, they're not going to want to follow you. You are actually hired because theoretically, you know how to harness the collective power of all of that individual talent in such a way that it creates music that an audience will want to hear. That's your job. And that yeah. is a very different job than any job in the individual orchestra pit but all the jobs are still critical to make the music and reach the audience. That's a perfect analogy. And it's such a good one because I think you're so right. I mean, I've known excellent, excellent marketers who are brilliant people, but they were not great managers of teams and leaders of people because they are such different skill sets. And I think it's not always this one-to-one relationship that if you're great at your job eventually and you witness enough good leadership, you will become a great leader. I actually do think like, it's a totally different set of skills. Like this is being tested right now because I'm managing a very large team. And we were talking about this before we started. Like, I love marketing. I actually love the work of marketing. I love doing the work. And, you know, when I went to Path Factory, they were super early stage. And I kind of took that job because I wanted to like do the marketing and be involved in all the nitty gritty stuff. And then by the end, you know, you're basically managing people. And and right. now I have a job where I'm, I'm, I'm managing a lot of people. And... I'm quite good at that. I think, you know, I'm very self-aware and introspective and thoughtful. I'm close enough to the many of the roles that I really do know what it takes. And so, but like, I am not a marketer. I am a conductor. I am trying to keep the trains running on time and, you know, constantly looking for the dependencies and the contingencies and the obstacles. And like, that's, the job. And sometimes like that can be a hard thing to come to terms with that that's the job, right? But if you think about the evolution of the marketing leader role, you know, if your head of sales and your head of product are the personification of what you're selling, the head of marketing has to become the personification of who you're selling to. You know, the head of marketing becomes your outside in lens on your organization. And now we have at our disposal 
technologies to measure the impact of how successful we are at doing that that are completely different than anything we've ever been able to get our hands or our budget on. So, you know, I think what that actually means, and I I think what you're tapping into, even in sort of self-diagnosing your own role right now, is the fact that you've actually become a business strategist first and a marketer. And I believe that is the natural evolution of the modern marketing leader. I wouldn't want to see it go in any other direction than that. Hope you guys enjoyed that conversation with Julie. We're actually going to talk to her again in part two next time on the Further Podcast. Go a little bit deeper into some of those marketing leadership traits and some of that psychology that I think makes Julie such a great person to talk to. She knows so much about the mind of CMOs. And so it's a really great discussion. I hope you'll join us then. stay home for the greater good. Secondhand smoke doesn't. It drifts through cracks in walls, air vents, and sink drains, spreading toxic chemicals that can damage lungs. Secondhand vape also puts your lungs at risk, even with the fruity smells. Protect yourself and the people around you from these secondhand dangers. Learn how at tobaccofreeca.com.